please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we will be reading verses 46 through 52. Mark 10, 46 through 52. There we read, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Looking to Christ as the only object of our faith is not simply exercised once at the time we are converted and never exercised again thereafter in our life. Trusting Christ and looking to Christ for all that we need in every facet of our existence here upon the earth is a necessary fruit of saving faith every day that we live. In fact, if we evaluate the reason for our failing, the reason for our falling prey to besetting sins in our life with which we struggle daily, it will inevitably focus around our failure to look in faith to the Almighty and faithful Savior to help us, to protect us, to supply all that we need, and to keep His promises. Dear ones, it may not be a lack of knowledge as to the power and promises of Christ that prevent you from trusting or resting in the Lord today, but rather a sinful self-sufficiency whereby you have learned to depend upon yourself or to depend upon your possessions or to depend upon your relationships in this life rather than to depend upon the Lord for all that you need. The fact that in the Gospel accounts we are continually brought back again and again to the theme of overcoming faith in the power and faithfulness of the Lord our God indicates that Christ knows this to be 
foundational in your life and in mine and to be a weakness in your life and in mine that is so easy to fall away to keeping our eye of faith upon Jesus Christ as various things happen to us, as those besetting sins within us rise up, as those temptations come, it is ever so difficult to keep our eye of faith upon him. But if we did, if we and to the degree that we keep our eye of faith upon him, to that same degree we will see more and more grace supplied to overcome temptations in our life, sins, besetting sins in our life, to be pleasing to him, to have a clean and pure conscience before God. Dear ones, I tell you for truth, if you ignore this subject today, because you have heard it a hundred times before in the past. You will be the loser. But if you heed it, if you receive it by faith, you will be the winner. The main points from our text today in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52 are these. Number one, Faith under fire. Mark 10.46 Number two, faith in motion. Mark 10.47-50 And number three, faith rewarded. Mark 10.51-52 Let us consider first then the, the main point, faith under fire. Mark 10.46, where we read, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. As we consider the inspired infallible words of Holy Scripture this Lord's Day, the Lord Jesus is in the midst of his final visit to Jerusalem, just initiating his final visit to Jerusalem, where he will soon lay down his life for the sins of his people. And in Mark 10.1, the Lord had crossed over from the east side of the Jordan River, known as that area known as Perea, on the east side, to the west side of the Jordan River, in the area the southern part of Palestine known as Judea, which Jerusalem was the capital. Mark 10 verses 1 through 45 recount events that occurred before arriving at Jerusalem. And the first stop that he made in crossing the river was Jericho. Now, you'll remember, likewise, when the children of Israel under Joshua crossed over the Jordan River and the Jordan River opened and they walked through the Jordan River on dry land, the first city they came to was Jericho. The city of Jericho. And you'll recall that there was a particular prostitute in that particular city that the, that the spies, two spies, found shelter and safety with. And that she, though being a prostitute, had heard 
of the mighty acts of God. Now God had delivered his people from Egypt. And how God was delivering his people even now and how the fear of God had come upon her. And how she willingly took them in, the spies. And this was an indication of her faith in the living God. And when Jericho fell, the walls tumbling down as the people of Israel marched around it, Rahab and her household were preserved, were saved. God miraculously preserved them. That portion of the wall which had her home in it was preserved. And now it's approximately 1,500 years later in the same city that's been rebuilt, obviously. Here we find the infinite power of the Lord being demonstrated to another very unlikely candidate, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. As we compare the account of this historical narrative in Mark's Gospel with that in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, if you want to compare it, it's Matthew 20, verses 29-34, and in Luke's Gospel, it's Luke chapter 18, verses 35-43, we note a couple differences in what is related in the Gospel account. First, Matthew's account says that there were two blind men rather than one. Uh, this we accept as absolutely true. Mark and Luke agree or state only one blind man being there. Now, I want to point out that Mark and Luke do not contradict Matthew but rather focus their attention on the one blind man who is perhaps most notable of the two, most well-known among the two, perhaps due to the length of time that he had been begging for how long he had been blind there in Jericho. We see, as you may recall, the same thing happening in Mark 5.2, where uh, Matthew's Gospel speaks of two men possessed by demons, whereas Mark and Luke mention only one man possessed by demons. And again, it's not that there's a contradiction between the Gospel accounts. It's just the fact that one Gospel account, as opposed to the others, <clears throat> is focusing, or I should say two the two Gospel accounts, Mark and Luke in both of these cases, are focusing upon the most notable of the two. A second difference that we would note here in this account of blind Bartimaeus, a second difference between the gospel accounts and the healing of this man is that Matthew and Mark state that he was healed as Christ was leaving Jericho, whereas Luke in Luke 18.35 seems to indicate that the blind man was healed as Christ was entering the city of Jericho. And again, I would submit to you, we may reconcile this difference 
by understanding that Luke relates when the man or the blind man first heard that Jesus was passing through Jericho, that is, as Christ was entering the city, that the events that that this occurred, whereas Matthew and Luke relate when the blind man was actually healed, that is, as Christ was leaving the city. Since the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and since God cannot lie or contradict himself, all such seeming differences between the same accounts in scripture can be reconciled. It's not, a, it's not a contradiction to say that blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was passing through Jericho as he entered into the city. And then in another account to demonstrate or to say that he was obviously moved from one point to the other, how long it took for Jesus to go from entering the city to exiting the city, we're not told. So there no doubt was enough time for the actual healing to have occurred as he was exiting the city. So that, you know, the actual healing occurred when he was leaving. But when did Bartimaeus hear that Jesus was in the city? Well, perhaps as he was just about to enter the city. I mean, most likely that's the way to explain what seems to be a difference. But I want to emphasize, dear ones, again, because God cannot lie, there can't be any real contradictions in the scripture. <clears throat> to allow, dear ones, for real contradictions in the Bible is ultimately to undermine the truthfulness of God himself and the authority of God as it relates to our very salvation. Because if you cannot trust and believe that it is true, that these seeming differences can be reconciled at the point of the healing of the blind man, how can you believe or trust that anything else that God says in his word is true? The same authority that rests upon the account of the healing of blind Bartimaeus is the same authority that undergirds every point of our salvation. To be skeptical and to doubt the one is to lead to being skeptical and doubting the other. And the same thing with regard to the historicity of a six-day creation, six 24-hour day creation, to undermine that and to argue away as, as, as a way of telling a story uh, using figures of speech to argue away the, the universal flood that we find in Genesis as just, again, the way the ancient people used to tell stories. But there's a spiritual truth c communicated in the flood account, but you, can't, you, you do not need to, to believe that those actual events occurred. Simply look to the myth or, or to the spiritual truth. Uh, behind the story is the way many, even within so-called Reformed churches today, are presenting the Bible. And so we find, again, what this leads to. What this actually leads to, if that cannot be trusted, how do we make a decision? What can be trusted? 
when God himself says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's not some of the scripture that is inspired by God, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Let us be careful, dear ones, because many heresies are circulating in the church today. And I mean the church, the Reformed Church, the Church uh, Universal. Many heresies are circulating in the church today, broadly speaking, as it relates to attacking the very authority of the Scripture. And once that is allowed into a church... It's like the head of the serpent being just the nose of the serpent being allowed into the tent. It's not long before the whole serpent is in the tent. We have to chop the head off before the whole body is in. As we consider what the text says about this blind man, we shall better understand the trial of this poor man's faith. The man's name was Bartimaeus, we're told, the son of Timaeus. Actually, Bartimaeus is composed of two words, Bar and then Timaeus. Timaeus is his father's name. Bar is, means son of in Aramaic. So he is, his name is actually the son of Timaeus. Just like we find in Simon Bar-Jonah in Matthew 16, 17, Peter was the son of Jonah. It is not very often that we see the specific names of those who were healed by the Lord mentioned in Scripture. So this is one of those unique situations we actually find the name listed of one who was healed. This must indicate how well known this blind man was in that area. Perhaps before as well as after he was healed. This miraculous healing was performed upon one who was known by all to have been blind. Mark, who most likely wrote Peter's account of Christ's life, is in effect saying, check it out. If you don't believe me, check it out. And see that this is true, that Christ actually healed this blind man whose name is Bartimaeus of Jericho. Next we learn that Bartimaeus had a particular affliction, namely blindness. How he came to be blind or for how long he had been blind, we're not told. However, the mention of his name, Bartimaeus, would likely indicate that he had been blind long enough that the people of Jericho knew him to be the blind man. Blindness, if we think that blindness today is a great affliction, to be blind in that particular day when there wasn't the technology that we now have uh, today, it is a great affliction today to be blind, and we should thank God every day that we have physical eyes to behold the glory of God around us, to be able to see our loved ones, our children, be able to see our grandchildren, to be able 
to see, to work, and perform the work and the jobs that we do, to be able to read as we can with our eyes. But in that particular day, they didn't have Braille. They didn't have the technology that we now have. And so, one who was blind, either in order to learn, would have to be taught simply orally, because he could not read. He had no way to read. Uh, and so, uh, there w- this was a great trial and affliction. He couldn't work, uh, because they didn't have laws, perhaps, I mean, laws in that particular day that would would uh, uh, help the handicap in, in, with regard to uh, encouraging the handicap to be able to uh, use their handicap in particular lines of work. He was a beggar. That's all he could do. Being blind, that's all he could do. It would probably indicate he didn't come from a wealthy family. The fact that he had to beg. Perhaps he didn't even have uh, a family. Uh, uh, we don't know, of course, but the fact that uh, he was out begging may indicate he didn't have any family. So here is a man in very dire straits, very serious circumstances. Blindness in ancient times brought not only visual darkness, but darkness and hopelessness as we have said, in providing food, clothing, and shelter. Have you ever closed your eyes and uh, just for a period of time, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a half an hour or whatever, just to, just to see what it's like to be blind? Again, uh, I know that I injured one eye for a period of time earlier in my adult years I had uh, had an object hit me in the eye and I had to have a patch over it for some period of time and just having one eye patched one eye patched was uh, was difficult enough you know being able to not have full range and sight but not to have two eyes not to have either eye uh, That's, uh, again, just amazing. Uh, What a gift and what a grace uh, that God has given to us to be able to see. Uh, And so the question is, do you regularly thank God in your time of worship that you can see physically, that you have the ability to see? Because as God says in Exodus 4.11, He's the one who makes man to be able to hear. He's the one who makes the one to be able to see. He's the one who makes the dumb, the one who can't speak as well as the one who can speak, the one who can hear as well as the one who can't hear, the one who can't see as well as the one who can see. Have you thanked the Lord that your children can see as parents, that they're not blind? It's not a gift that you or I deserve any more than the ability to spiritually see. And so let us give thanks to the Lord for His mercy and His grace to us. Finally, we note under this first main point that the blindness of Bartimaeus had consigned him to begging in order to provide for himself. Now, begging for alms was not unlawful uh, in and of itself, provided it was 
because one was unable to provide for oneself. Because in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, if one will not work, neither let him eat. So if one is simply not wanting to work because he wants others to provide for him, to take care of him, that type of thing, then, uh, then Paul says he should not eat. Now, obviously, we're talking about those who are, are able, who are adults, who are able to go out and work, um, uh, to provide for themselves. And we train our children growing up by giving them various responsibilities in the home to prepare them for that time. And so we, as parents, look for opportunities to give our children work, to help them to become responsible, so that they are learning that the world's not unfair, unjust, or that God is unfair or unjust to them because they have to work for a living. And they may have to work very hard to supply their needs. And so this is how we prepare our children by way of that time when they will need to provide for themselves. But Bartimaeus was compelled to depend upon the charity of others because he could not work. He sat every day. And this is how, no doubt, he became so well-known within Jericho because he's probably various locations. People would help him to one location that was a popular concourse of people passing to and fro. He would be there and crying out for alms, crying out for charity, for people to have mercy upon him to provide his needs. He lived from day to day not knowing where his next meal would come from. Or whether he would even have a meal for that day. We do not know with certainty as to when faith was generated in the soul of Bartimaeus, but it would appear from the following verses that he had already heard of Christ and perhaps had already believed in Christ, for he immediately professes his faith in Christ as the promised Messiah, when he pleads, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. It would appear that here was one who, having embraced Christ to be the Messiah, to be his Savior, was yet suffering under the fiery trial of blindness and poverty. Dear ones, again, we need to realize that the afflictions and trials in our life are not immediately removed when we become Christians. They were not removed immediately when Bartimaeus exercised faith in the Lord. And neither will they be in our lives be immediately removed. But we can be assured that God ordains all that comes into our life to purify our faith to strengthen us, to draw us to himself, and uses them for our good and not for our evil. Not for evil, not for our destruction, but for our good. That we can be assured of. And that it's through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. And so, we don't have a, a view of God that would maintain that God is, has nothing to do with the afflictions and trials that come into our life, that that's always the devil, that God is totally removed from those types of things. God cannot bring that which is 
is hard and difficult that brings suffering into our life. We understand from the scripture that God is intimately involved in all of these things in our life. And he ordains them and he governs them and overrules them for our good and for our well-being. The second main point is faith in motion. We read in Mark chapter 10, verses 47 through 51, the following. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should, he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Now, there are several snapshots of faith here in this short uh, account of Bartimaeus. Snapshots of faith in motion. Snapshots of faith in action that we can see. And I'd like to just point them out to you for our own encouragement and growth in grace. The first example of faith in motion is demonstrated... When upon hearing that Jesus of Nazareth was passing his way, Bartimaeus began to plead with Christ with a loud voice, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. In Mark 10.46 As mentioned earlier, this confession of faith would most likely indicate that Bartimaeus had already come to faith in Christ. How he heard of Jesus, we do not know. Most likely, he heard the gospel of Christ through the faithful report of others who told of the good news of Christ. And upon hearing that, believed the report that was faithfully passed on to him, just as many of you, myself included, have heard this good report from parents or from friends or co-workers and were driven to Christ because of the good report that was given to us from the Word of God. <clears throat> Bartimaeus didn't have to visibly see or visibly witness Christ heal the blind, the deaf, or raise the dead in order to believe. Bartimaeus, dear ones, was walking by faith and not by sight. Although blind, he did not exercise a blind faith. For true saving faith, which God graciously bestows upon his elect, sees and receives the promise of life offered by a God who cannot lie. In other words, the, the faith of those who reach out and, and receive what God offers to them, that faith grasps that upon the authority of God. God cannot lie. 
God promises this to me, I believe it on the basis of God's authority. I receive it by faith alone. Here was a man who by God's amazing grace had heard either Christ preach or received a faithful testimony from someone else. And based upon what he heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he received that promise of life and forgiveness by faith alone. Dear ones, we not only have a faithful testimony in Holy Scripture, we have an infallible testimony in Holy Scripture. How much more accountable we are. Bartimaeus couldn't see. We can see. We can read for ourselves. Bartimaeus didn't have in his possession the Holy Scripture. We have in our possession the Holy Scripture. How more aggravated when we turn away from the truth of God's authoritative word. Ignore it. Neglect it. Won't read it faithfully, daily. How we are more accountable and how we aggravate our sins when we likewise not only ignore it and neglect it, but when we disobey it. When we go contrary to what God tells us to do. Note also, dear ones, that his faith was revealed to be in motion not only by his confession of faith, but also by the manner in which he appealed to the Lord. It says he began to cry out in Mark 10.47. To cry out. We can tell much about our faith in times of prayer, dear ones. We can tell about how our faith, the quality of our faith, how we are doing in our relationship to Christ by our times of prayer and calling out to the Lord, by the way we appeal to God. Do we express these holy and earnest petitions within our heart to the Lord with a casual, no big deal kind of attitude? Or do we cry out to the Lord with a loud voice, as it were, that He would have mercy upon us and grant us our request for His glory and for His honor? Is there a sense of urgency in our prayers to the Lord? Or are we just basically just just becomes as casual as you know at the table past the salt, past the pepper? Is that the way we pray? Or is there a sense of urgency in our call and our cry to the Lord? Because that indicates, dear ones, the quality of our faith. That indicates really where our heart is, how we call out to the Lord, with what kind of urgency we have. You see, dear ones, we have to be careful. We criticize and condemn various churches as the Roman Catholic Church for uttering vain repetition in prayer to God. But we do the same thing when our heart is not in our prayers, when there's no urgency in our calling out to God, when it is just so matter of fact. The earnest and loud plea of Bartimaeus also reveals he didn't deserve. He didn't believe he deserved 
anything from the Lord, but merely threw himself upon the tender mercies of Christ when he says, have mercy upon me. He does not plead, have justice upon me. He doesn't say, give me what I deserve, Lord. I'm a holy or righteous man. I've been unfairly afflicted with blindness. He doesn't appeal to Christ on that basis. He appeals to Christ on the basis of his own sin, of his own need. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. I ask you, what was it that God used in the life of Bartimaeus most likely to bring him to this place of humility before Christ rather than boastful pride? It was his blindness. It was his desperate need. Never, dear ones, downplay what God brings into your life because when God brings affliction and trial into your life, He is showing to you your need your need of Christ. And so, as we think about what humbled Bartimaeus here, let us likewise not simply look at Bartimaeus and say, praise God. The blindness of Bartimaeus humbled him. That's wonderful, but turn our eyes away from ourselves. Not seeing what God is using in our life to humble us. Exactly for the same reason. That we would cry out to Him, Lord, have mercy upon me. Dear ones, this is written for your encouragement. This is written for your instruction. Take it as such. Have you only come to resent the Lord or to doubt the Lord's goodness through your suffering? Or have you come to believe through your suffering that He is yet the Almighty, good, and ever-faithful Heavenly Father to you? Has your heart been hardened through your suffering or has your heart been softened through your suffering and through the trials that God has brought into your life? Have you mortified and crucified all pleas to God that are based upon Him to be fair to you and granting your requests rather than falling upon His mercy and crying out to Him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. A second snapshot of faith in motion or faith in action occurs in Mark 10.48 where it says, And many charged Him that He should hold His peace but he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. You see, many here sought to silence Bartimaeus, to quiet him. But he made his appeal even louder to the Lord. He raised his voice even more so when they told him to shut up. A faith that is in motion, an active faith, dear ones, will not be silenced by man. When attempts to silence true faith are made, true faith is not quenched like water upon a fire, but rather is more like gas upon a fire. Afflictions will not silence true faith. Poverty 
will not silence true faith. Afflictions, physical afflictions, uh, uh, spiritual trials, uh, various circumstances that we wrestle with in our life, pressures and stresses will not silence true faith. People will not silence true faith. They will, in the case of showing and demonstrating faith, they only provide us with opportunities to manifest our faith in action. Not to silence it, but give us just another opportunity. Is that how you view afflictions and trials? Here's another opportunity for Christ to reveal to me true faith. To reveal in me true faith. Another opportunity to show that I belong to the Lord because I'm trusting in Him. Or do we rather curse God because of what we undergo? Because of the circumstances and situations. We don't like them. They're uncomfortable to us. Does it become an opportunity to curse God for you or an opportunity to trust God? To show your faith is real. It's alive. It's active. Because that faith is placed in Christ. Dear ones, do you find yourself making sad excuses for not having regular secret worship, regular family worship, regular corporate worship, Dear ones, a faith that is in motion is evidenced by hungering and thirsting for Christ at the expense of everyone and everything that would discourage you from pursuing Christ, His truth, and His righteousness. This act of faith or faith in motion is like the faith of the friends of the palsy. You recall, there were hindrances and inconveniences to those four friends they had a friend who was paralyzed, who had the palsy. There was the crowded room in which Christ was in. They couldn't get to him. Did that hinder them? Did that hinder their faith? No. Then there was this roof. Did that hinder them? No. They took the roof apart in order to bring their friend down before Christ. You see... When our faith is active and when our faith is in Christ who can do what is impossible to man, when we see God as so mighty, as so powerful, that nothing can stand in His way, there is no hindrance to our faith. No matter who it may be or what it may be. Because our eye is fixed upon Him who does what is impossible to man. Bartimaeus did not allow anyone or anything to hinder him from laying hold of the power and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That was a grace given to him by God. That grace of faith. May God give to us the grace to stir up that faith in our lives every day. A third example of faith in motion is demonstrated in Mark 10.49. There we read, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. 
It would appear that Christ himself did not immediately answer the loud and earnest cries of Bartimaeus. Calvin suggests in his commentary that Bartimaeus began crying out to the Lord when Christ first entered the city of Jericho, as we alluded to earlier in Luke 18.35, and continued to do so until Christ exited Jericho, where the healing actually occurred. How much he was crying out to the Lord along the way, by way of people perhaps guiding guiding him and helping him or carrying him, we don't know. But we do know that the scripture says he began crying out when Christ entered Jericho, and he was still crying out when Christ exited Jericho. Did the Lord not hear him? Did Jesus not hear blind Bartimaeus when he first began to cry out to him? Of course he did. Since he was the eternal son of God, he heard Bartimaeus crying out to him. Why did he not then immediately heal blind Bartimaeus when he first began to plead with the Lord? Let me just suggest two reasons. First, to increase the faith of Bartimaeus in waiting patiently upon Christ. You see, again, waiting can either strengthen and increase your faith, or you will become weary of continuing to wait upon the Lord and become discouraged and cast away your faith upon the Lord. Waiting again is a very important trial God sends into all of our lives. Waiting upon Him. Waiting for answers to prayer. Waiting for certain things in our life which we would like to see those besetting sins gone immediately. But having to wait and work through those trials daily. Trusting in Christ. Knowing that when we get to heaven, when we are with the Lord, they will be forever gone from us, but in the meantime we continue to wait to watch and to pray that we enter not into temptation. And second, why didn't the Lord immediately heal Bartimaeus? Secondly, to manifest His own glory. Manifest His own mercy in rescuing a single needy, blind beggar. You see, dear ones, the Almighty God comes not to nameless, faceless multitudes, but the Almighty God comes to you as an individual who, like Bartimaeus, is in desperate need of Christ for the healing of your soul and the healing of your body. This is written, again, for your encouragement to likewise cry out to the Lord in faith and not to allow your circumstances, whatever they may be, to hinder you from trusting in God who works the impossible. God comes to you every day. Moment by moment, God comes to you. Yes, you may have to wait, but He comes to you. And He comes to you as a blind beggar. You come with empty hands, having nothing to offer Him. 
simply to accept and to receive everything from Christ. His righteousness, his forgiveness, everlasting life, patience, crucifying and mortifying this flesh. All of these things are graces and gifts purchased for you by Jesus Christ, which the Lord brings to you in the gospel of salvation. And it's a matter of daily applying those promises in faith, trusting the Lord. A fourth example of this man, blind man's faith in motion is observed in Mark 10.50 where it says, And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. He cast away his outer garment. Why? Because he did not want anything to hinder him from coming to Christ. He didn't want anything to hinder him from coming to Christ. Now, was there something sinful about an outer garment? Well, of course not. It was a blessing because it kept him warm. You know, as the night got cool, it kept him warm. It was something good. But he didn't want even something good that God had given for his blessing to hinder him from coming to Christ. Food, clothing, jobs, hobbies, computers, Books, music, family, friends. Again, I'm not saying all music, but even good music. All of these things may be and are, I think, the things I mentioned in and of themselves, are blessings from God. But if they become a hindrance to our coming to Christ in faith, in obeying Christ in faith, in loving Christ in faith, in serving Christ in faith, then we must willingly set them aside in order to come to Christ. And I ask you, what is getting in your way of coming to Christ in faith? Or you're enjoying and communing with Christ in faith. Not only what sin is preventing you, but what good things are preventing you from coming to Christ. Are you willing to cast all of those even good things aside, if necessary, as secondary to your coming to Christ as your chief desire and your chief hope, now and for all eternity, so that He is supreme, so that He is your chief desire? your chief joy. If not, if you're not willing to do that, it is no wonder that you do not see the work of Christ in your life. You're still holding on to your outer garment. And it's causing you to not be able to run to Christ or to come to Christ without tripping all over it. You'll not let go, if that's the case, you will not let go of this life and the things of this life to embrace Jesus Christ. The third and final main point is faith rewarded in Mark 10.52 where we read, And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. The 
The Lord in his great compassion asked exactly the question Bartimaeus was dying to hear. What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? In trust and confidence that Christ was both able and merciful to heal him, Bartimaeus prays that he might have his sight. The Lord is asking you the same thing today. What is it that you would have me do for you? The Lord is continually asking that. That invitation is always open to you as a child of God. What is it that you would have me do for you? You see, that's the invitation we have to come to Christ in prayer. That's why prayer is so wonderful and so beautiful. I mean, if you had the opportunity to be in Bartimaeus' place right then and there, would you have said, nothing, Lord? You know, I'm blind, but no, I don't have anything that I want you to do for me. How dishonoring to Christ when he asks you, what is it that you would have me do for you? To say, no, not really anything. Everything's just going fine, Lord. You don't realize your desperate need if you don't have something every day to cry out to the Lord. When he asks that question, what will you have to do that I would do for you? Bartimaeus had something very clearly that he wanted the Lord to do for him at that particular point in time. Lord, this is what he said in verse 50, that I might receive my sight. Sorry, verse 51, that I might receive my sight. Dear ones, we can never pray with true faith and receive comfort in our prayers if we are not confidently persuaded that he is able and that he will always give us what is good and evil for us. When we cry, when we know that the Lord is saying, what wilt thou have me do for you? And we do give to him what we would have the Lord do for us. Lord, help me overcome this besetting sin. Help me, Lord, to meet my financial response. Help me to be wise in the way I use my money. Help me, Lord, to set a godly example before my children. As a husband before my wife. As a wife before my husband. As parents before our children. Children to set a godly example before your parents. Whatever it may be. But dear ones, we won't even pray that prayer. We will not even say, Lord, this is what I desire This is what I want, Lord, which is according to thy revealed will, either an earthly, physical need, give us this day our daily bread, or some spiritual need in our life. But we won't even do so if we do not believe that he is able to do so, that he is merciful, he delights in mercy, and that he only gives us, even when he delays, even when he doesn't give to us what we want right then and there, that he does so for our good. But dear ones, we must remember he can do us no wrong. Whatever there comes, whatever comes into our life, we must remember it's for our good. Just as the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, that just as a good father will not give a serpent or a rock to his 
child when he asks for bread or for food, but will give him that which is good, how much more will your heavenly Father give you what is good for you when you cry out to him? Now, again, what you ask may not either be in accordance with his revealed will. You may ask for something, and if our children ask, you know, give me 30 days of you know, candy bars or, you know, whatever. Let, let me have uh, all of this junk, uh, you know, gives me that which is in effect not good for me because I simply want to do it. The Lord's going to say, no, that's not good for you. Or if our hearts are so inclined to do what is evil, he may give us what we ask for in order to teach us a lesson. And what to ask for. Or the Lord may delay giving us what is good that we've asked for in order, as we said, to teach us to wait upon Him, to look for, to Him, to try and test our faith. Because Bartimaeus looked in faith to Christ and to Christ's power, to Christ and His merit, to Christ and His faithfulness, to Christ and His righteousness, to Christ and his sufficiency rather than to his own power, or merit, or faithfulness, righteousness, or sufficiency, he is heard by the Lord. When the Lord declares, thy faith hath made thee whole. It is not to be understood that it was the virtue of his faith that healed him. It is not faith that heals. It is not faith that saves it's the object of our faith that heals. The object of our faith that saves. It is Jesus Christ. It was by embracing the power and mercy of Christ by means of faith that secured his healing. Thus, dear ones, faith is like an eye. Just as the eye, in looking at an object, does not look at itself, so faith does not look at itself boasting itself in its faith, not at least not true saving faith or true sanctifying faith, doesn't look at itself, but is like an eye looking to Christ for all that is needed. Bartimaeus is a reminder to us all that we are all blind beggars before Christ. We deserve nothing but his just condemnation in hell for our sin. But out of his infinite storehouse of mercy, the Lord hears our cry of faith to heal us of our blindness, to grant us his forgiveness, and to provide us with all that we need now and forever to the glory of God. And finally, dear ones, this man's genuine faith is evidenced by his, by his glorifying and praising God. As we read in Luke 18, verse 43, the other gospel account, after he was healed, we read these words. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. One of the greatest evidences of saving faith, dear ones, is a thankful heart. A thankful heart. When we consider the spiritual blindness which the Lord has mercifully healed us of, we have as much reason and even more Reason. Then did Bartimaeus to praise the Lord. The way to draw people to Christ is to let Christ be seen in your life 
through your thankful words and deeds, whether it's at home, on the job, at school, or at play. If the faith and life of a blind beggar, dear ones, if the faith and life of a blind beggar was used to draw people to Christ, that they, it says, praised God, the multitudes praised God, the faith and life of all of us who are blind beggars by nature should be used by the Lord or will be used by the Lord to draw others to Christ as well. Where we have that faith evidenced in thankful voices for all that God has done for us, people are going to take notice. Where, on the other hand, we are grumbling and complaining about circumstances where we, in effect, are cursing God for what he has brought into our life because things haven't worked out the way that we believe that they should have, people aren't going to be drawn to Christ. People aren't going to be drawn to Christ. So, let us heed this particular witness to God's faithfulness in our life that the Lord evidences active faith. Faith in motion, even by a thankful tongue. Amen. Let us stand together in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Thou hast taken, Lord, Thy Word and used it as a nail in our lives to to hammer us and secure us and nail us to Christ. Because, Lord, there is hope in none other. There is no hope in ourselves. We are blind beggars. Lord, we come empty-handed to Thee, not bringing what we are in ourselves, not bringing what we have done, but, Lord, simply coming with empty hands, crying out, Lord, be merciful to us as sinners. Heal us of our spiritual blindness. Heal us of our spiritual deafness. Heal us of our spiritual impotency with our hands and with our feet to do the will of God and to think the thoughts of God after after Thee, O God. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would give to us faith in motion, that we would not allow and let the even the blessings of this life to hinder us from coming to Christ, but that we would take them off if necessary in order to come to Christ simply by making Christ most important. We pray, our Father, that that Thou would work effectually, Lord, by Thy means of grace in in our hearts and in our lives, in our families and in our church. For, Father, in coming, and it should be our the way we view, Lord, the ordinances and the means of grace, we should see those ordinances as coming to Christ. Family worship, secret worship is coming to Christ. Corporate worship is coming to Christ. Singing the Psalms is coming to Christ. Hearing thy word read and preached is coming to Christ. Sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper is coming to Christ for all that we need. Lord, heal, heal us today 
of our many spiritual infirmities. And grant to us thankful hearts, O Lord, that we may be delivered from callousness and hardness and bitterness. And Lord, may not be a part of the rat race that is a part of this life so often, that we may find our rest in Thee, our security, our peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.